Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan Enclave. Thrilled to be joined by one Jack Inslee today, record producer, audio engineer, and the founder of Full Service Radio, a community podcast network and internet radio station formerly broadcasting from this very studio. A graduate of NYU's music technology program, Jack helped Heritage Radio Network, uh, and he helped launch Heritage Radio Network in 2009 out of two recycled shipping containers adjoining Bushwick, New York, institution Roberta's Pizza. He produced a critically acclaimed album with singer-songwriter Odetta Hartman and continues to host parties and rub elbows with some of the most influential underground musicians and DJs in New York, Los Angeles, Miami, D.C., and beyond, uh, which is to say he is much cooler uh, than, than we are. Uh, we're thrilled to have him here. Uh, thank you for joining us, Jack. That is not true. You are the coolest, and thank uh, you for it. having me. Uh, um, uh, yeah, for, for non-listeners, you got your New York outfit on, all black, every, <laughs> all black, everything. Hova would be so proud. Uh, um, the premise here, blessedly simple. Uh, we each have a bottle to share one with the other, and uh, we're doing an old Muscadet double down. Jack has brought along a bottle of 2010 Muscadet. Uh, it is a wine from Shellfish Tower Country at the mouth of France's Loire River. I've followed suit with a slightly younger wine, a 2017, from the same region, albeit a slightly different corner of the Severet Men zone. Uh, we will taste through them both while riffing about life and wine along the way, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to Jack. As ever, if you like the sound of what we're drinking, uh, the wines will be available for purchase at Revelers Hour, which is Washington, D.C.'s premier was uh, wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel studio. Uh, Jack, I usually kind of kick things off with, uh, you know, some questions about life and wine, this being a beverage podcast, but, you know, revolving mostly around um, the fruit of the vine. But today's Epi's going to be a little more about music, and um, I wanted to kind of kick things off with um, the roots of your life in music. Did you grow up in a musical family? Uh, I did not, no. No, I'm the first person in my, first person in my family to go to college. Um, but, oh, wild. Uh, no, yeah, no, no musicians in the family. Because um, I read that uh, at the tender age of 13 in Long Island, you set up a recording studio of your own. Um, uh, what kind of albums were we producing out of your home recording oh, studio? Lord, I never talk about this. Um, so, yes, I was 13. I built a little studio in my mom's basement. Very makeshift uh, hip-hop music and many, many kind of kids in the neighborhood recording with me, producing albums for them, producing albums for myself. What was your handle at this point? Oh, my God. Uh, jackknife. Oh, nice. I like that. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's, yeah. that's strong. That's, I, I never talk about this. Yeah. But that's where this all started. Nice. Um, uh, was late, so is this like Mom's Basement? Totally. Yeah. Mom's Basement, Long Island. Um, but it really became like a sort of legitimate business. I mean, I was like, I was charging kids like 30 an hour at 15, 16 years old. That's a, for, that's a pretty, that's a very fair rate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. <laughs> you would charge way more now. I would. Um, but yeah, like, you know, there were adults coming in there. I mean, at one point, like the police showed up to our house and because neighbors had thought we were like a drug house or something. Oh, wow. I could see and that. My mom got really indignant about it. She's nice. Like, my son's running a business in the basement. I mean, so it was it was a whole thing. How did you, you know, kind of set about opening your own studio? Were you 
like a multi-instrumentalist at that point? Were you just like listening to a lot of local tunes and you thought, I want to, you know, I want in on this? It's actually a funny story. This is probably the first time I'm telling this story too. Um, I was in junior high and I stole a Twix bar from the cafeteria. As one does in junior high. And um, called into the principal. They're like, you know, the next day, like, I assume your mom knows about this. Yeah, my mom knows about this. Like, sure, we're going to call her. So, of course, she had not known about it. She's furious. My punishment was no music for the summer. Oh, wild. Um, which felt very extreme at the time. But what I ended up doing, and I loved rap as a kid, was I would write down lyrics I could remember from songs that I liked that I couldn't listen to, and I think that got me writing. Oh, cool. It was the first time I kind of put pen to paper, and then I think started improvising my own little things, and then uh, in music class, me and a few friends would, we were playing with like the demo song on a keyboard, and just, I don't know, it sort of just grew from there. And I, I was a computer nerd, so I had like the first CD burner that came out. Oh, cool. It took as long to burn a CD as the actual album was, so one-to-one like <laughs> one speed. Um, and I used Windows Sound Recorder with like an instrumental playing in the background with friends and just made all these songs loosely. Oh, that's awesome. Printed and, and duplicated CDs, sold them in junior high. Um, Sold about 100 to 200 copies. Oh, that's awesome. So, do, you, do you have like a drum kit? What's the... Uh... No, these were just like other beats that were already had existed. Oh, okay. So this was really like nothing in the beginning. We were yeah. kids, but all of a sudden now I have like 2,000 bucks. Nice. And I used that money to buy more equipment, so like a real microphone and some other things, and then started making beats. And it just sort of kept snowballing, snowballing, snowballing until it was a semi-professional sounding studio. Yeah. Um, and all the music was original, and God, we probably did... 10 albums, if not more, altogether, and it's probably how I got into college. Oh, that's awesome, because uh, you parlayed that into um, school at NYU. It's yes. like, where else could you go? Um, so basically, you wanted to be Rick Rubin at this point in your life? Is that the idea? It's wild that you say that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like, actually, Rick Rubin yeah. was. Even since I was a kid, uh, I would tell my mom, what do you want to be when you grow up? Executive producer. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. I just saw on the back of a CD, executive produced by or whatever. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my favorite things, including some metal that I listened to as a kid, like System of a Down and stuff like that. Um, Rick Rubin was this name that kept coming up and then through all the hip hop stuff. So I actually did <laughs> aspire to be like a Rick Rubin. Yeah. No, I mean, there are, there are worse people to follow. Yeah. Um, and it's weird because then later in life with Heritage and Full Service, my title was executive producer. And my mom likes to remind me of that. Where it's like, you said as much as a small kid. That's awesome. So you imagine yourself, you know, cutting these seminal hardcore and, you know, indie hip hop records. But uh, you land in the food justice world. Oh, um, how, does, how does that happen? Well, the hip-hop thing died pretty quick when I got to NYU, and then I was doing singer-songwriter stuff that I've, de I've deleted all of this stuff <laughs> from the internet. Uh, singers, like, like, like what? Like, um, like American Roots music? Like, uh... No, I was doing maybe some hybrid of like, a, I don't know, a wannabe radio head meets like Beck or something. I don't know. Oh, cool. I was finding myself. I was yeah. at NYU. I was with a whole different class of people, and trying to figure things out, and then that was kind of awkward, and I put things out, but then took it down, then started DJing, throwing these raves and parties, and my best friend and roommate at the time... Was, but you, you still managed to graduate from NYU. I did, somehow. Oh, well yeah. played, well played. Yeah, I did. Um, and uh, my best friend and roommate at the time, Nat Wiener, uh, was the program director, or, or a program director at WNYU, the oh, school's awesome. radio station. Yeah, yeah. And Patrick Martins, who started Slow Food USA, 
uh, had some food studies kids from NYU working for him. He wanted to start this pirate radio station at a place called Roberta's, which was not even really open at the time. Um, and he had his employees reach out to NYU Radio for some help with that. So we and Nat at the time asked me to kind of be involved, like, you want to help out with this thing? It may be something, it may be nothing. This guy seems kind of crazy. We go to a meeting with him. He's got these manic notes on a napkin where it's like, food, pirate radio, <laughs> DJs, and pizza. And it's, like, like a, it's like a word cloud. Totally. It just felt so, I was like, this is never going to happen. I'm like, but yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, yeah. And it like paid well in the beginning. We're consulting, we're building. And it soon, like, as I kept hearing about him and slow food and heritage foods, it was like, no, 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 this guy's legit. He may seem crazy, but like, he does stuff. He gets stuff done. Um, and sure enough, it like started to take form. And then it was working, and we were broadcasting. And early on, I was like, these should be podcasts. And this is pre serial, so podcast wasn't really as buzzy a thing. Yeah. Um, so we moved it all to podcasts. And then I, kind of quickly was offered a job as the executive producer. Oh, that's kind awesome. of, And I was young, I guess. It was like 2009. And this is 2009. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're going to launch a Food Justice pirate, like, radio network, I feel like Roberta's is the ideal place to do it. So this is, this is Bushwick, kind of like mid-gentrification, but, you know, it still had... Oh, it was early. Yeah, it was, yeah, like, yeah. Relatively yeah. early. Yeah. It was still funky out It was, there like, weird. yeah, it was still, like, outer-lying, you know, neighborhood. It wasn't what it's, you know, kind of since become. Yeah. And Roberta's is so much more than an awesome restaurant. It is this, like, community hub um, for the people that that live there. And, um, you know, the, the radio station was a big part of that, was it not? Yeah, it was. And it's weird to look back on it. I mean... If, if anybody has the Roberta's cookbook, it like That's kinda, great cookbook. kind of d- does tell a bit of the story there. And I mean, like, it was truly anarchy and chaos there. I mean, like, dirt bike rallies in the backyard, drugs, everything. It was truly this pirate ship thing. And radio was a huge part of that, especially because in After Hours, I was bringing in all these, like, degenerates and doing this After Hours programming with graffiti writers and DJs. Oh, and cool. It was just this whole weird nexus and hub. And I knew nothing of food. I mean, I grew up, like, on food stamps, like, fast food. Um would only eat like chicken parm at any restaurant I went to. Um, and then suddenly thrust into this gig with Heritage Radio. And within like a month, I'm at lunches with Alice Waters or something yeah. and just confused and intimidated. And people, like, you have to try these Hen of the Woods mushrooms. And I'm like, well, in my head, I'm like, I hate mushrooms because all I'd had was like Long Island pizza yeah. with button mushrooms. But then you start saying yes and start trying things and you go down that rabbit hole, I think, as many people do with food. And yeah, it became really captivated by the good food movement, if you will. Yeah, like, I mean, did it seem initially to you kind of um, elitist? Totally. And Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think the cool thing about that scene is, um, you know, at a place like Roberta's in the Bushwick of the time, you know, a lot of that gets eroded pretty 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 fast a little bit yeah. yeah for sure because they were doing essentially fine dining especially out of that kitchen they're known for the pizzas but like carlo in that kitchen and yeah. he went on to open blanca i mean he was doing which is like, which is totally fine dining but like yeah. with a with a different veneer yes yeah. but the food you know still shares its roots with what was happening in that kitchen of roberta's in the beginning and um it's ambitious very. Yeah. And I couldn't even really appreciate it in the beginning because it was all new to me. Yeah. And I'd go places like the Spotted Pig or Babo or Lou, like all these, and I would just be so intimidated. Um, and I think it made me realize like 
how much of a barrier of entry there is for people and how lucky I was totally. to kind of just be thrown into that pool. Yeah. But without the connections I had, like, I don't know how I would have gotten into it yeah. at that time. I think now food media is different. Food TV, food podcast. There are other entry points for people to kind of find their way into this. But back then it was like... I don't know. That's kind of glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that because I don't know that we've done you know, a better job as such of making it more approachable and less, less elite. Uh, I, I hope that there are more voices and a proliferation of, you know, diversity and, and you know, kind of different people doing different things. But I, I still feel like sometimes that, you know, veneer of elitism exists for the sake of, you know, food and especially wine culture. Yeah, and wine we'll get into because that was a really scary thing for me. But I mean, I remember in these early years, like, and we were tracking all this with the content on Heritage and talking about it and all the hosts had incredible insight. But like, you know, this is a time when Drake was dropping like the French Laundry in some of his lyrics. Oh, yeah. And so it was finding its way. Uh, he's also a uh, huge Moscato fan. Is he? Yes, yes. Okay, famously, famously Moscato fan, yeah. So, I mean, that's perfect. I yeah. mean, um, so I think it did start kind of seeping into other parts of culture. And, yeah, yeah, that's um, true. And, and it has become just a part of popular culture um, in a way that historically in this country it hasn't always been. Yeah, right, exactly. So I think it was all kind of happening at the same time, and it was a lot of right place, right time stuff. And then I found myself as a weird, like, food industry adjacent person. Yeah. And, um, but wine was always this really scary thing. Yeah. Um, that even through my seven years at Heritage, I never felt like, and I really learned a lot about a lot just and by Roberta's, and, it should be said, has a great wine list. And um, the wine list is devoted to a lot of lesser-known, esoteric uh, Italian varietals in particular, and has a focus on non-interventionist wines, and so, um, and, and did very early on, you know, before natural wine, you know, became, you know, a bit of the cliche that it is is today. But, um, you know, I think all the various entries you have for food just get, you know, amplified, you know? Uh, Big time. Yeah, when, when, you're dealing, when you're dealing with wine. Uh, how long did it take for you to you know, just enjoy it, uh, mm. enjoy something like wine without feeling like it didn't belong to you. Well, I learned two important pieces of information from, uh, at the time her name was Erin Fitzpatrick. Wow, I haven't heard, thought about that name in a while. She did a show called, uh, I won't remember, it was a wine show, and then Joe Campanelli did oh, cool. another program. So I, a lot of osmosis and just like hearing guests say things, but two pieces of info that, one, I learned, I learned, uh, Piedmont and Loire. <laughs> oh, those are great. So, those are two so great regions like, to start with. That so. was sort of where to start. Yeah, so for the uninitiated, Piedmont, uh, literally in Italian, that is pied. Pied is foot. Uh, Mont is mountain. So there's the foot of the Italian Alps. And um, some of Italy's most famous wines come from there for the sake of Barolo Barbaresco. But um, all sorts of underrated gems uh, come from that region as well. And uh, then the Loire is, is the Garden of France. And uh, fittingly, we're trying a couple wines from uh, the Loire Valley. So longest river in France. And um, is kind of in the northern grape-growing region of France. One of my favorite quotes about the Loire is that all the wines have the kiss of the north wind, um, uh, which is which always like poetic. But uh, uh, those are also two regions that you know have become and, and, and you know emerged in the context of this more natural-leaning uh, wine movement as places where young people could afford vineyards and places that um, were just hotbeds of new thinking about you know how to produce and market wine. In, uh, in Europe. I mean, a big tenant of Heritage Foods and Radio and Patrick's whole kind of mantra, a lot of talk about terroir. And I think, like, 
I, I started to understand that vaguely with wine and like, oh, okay, this like latitude points or these regions and like, if you, you know, starting there. Uh, the other piece of info that was practical for me in the beginning was very simple. It was this idea that the difference between say a $10 bottle and a $30 bottle retail of wine is going to be greater than that gap between like 30 and 60. 50, yeah, totally. 50. And that was kind of I mean, that's Yeah, me. that's an economic paradigm. That's a diminishing rate of returns thing. And that is one of the most important lessons that consumers can learn in any walk of life, but particularly <laughs> when, it, when it comes to wine. I'm, I'm glad you name-dropped terroir. So terroir is this idea that wines communicate a sense of place because I was thinking in the context of the show about this interview I heard with Andre 3000, and he was talking about the terroir beats and he, when he traveled, he was saying, you know, like, going to New York with, like, the boom bap, it made sense to him that the beats sounded the way they did just because New York is the way it was. And going out west, you know, things are a little dreamier, they're more iconic, you know? And, and then down south, it's just, like, all bass and southern slang. And uh, his whole thing was that, like, the place, you know, produces this, like, musical imprint. And I, I, I like that. It's so real. And it, beyond hip-hop even, I mean, I've been obsessed with Mexico lately and have spent a considerable amount of time in Mexico City and Oaxaca um, and from that became obsessed with mezcal and have been collecting and bringing bottles back but cumbia is something I sort of had always heard but didn't it didn't click for me until I heard it in Mexico in the streets yeah. and it's like that idea of terroir where you're like Oh, I see how this thing exists in the place. I see how the place relates to the sound. It all clicks for me now. And it's a really special moment for, I mean, I was a Latin American history major, and it's a really special moment for those genres, too, because you have people, you have a lot of different younger actors um, in Mexico, like uh, Natalia Laforcade comes to mind, who are, like, channeling these traditions and making them new again, and the music is just, like, heart-rendingly beautiful. And there's nothing, like, there's no backbeat, there's no overlay. I mean, these are just, you know brilliant musicians making timeless, you know, or playing timeless songs, but it does feel connected to a place and part of the fabric of something in a, in a really profound way. I uh, love that idea, the terror of sound, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I always wonder what it, what does that say about DC for the sake of go-go, you know? Um, and, and, you know, there are other, like, esoteric musical forms, so there's like a whole strain of Baltimore house music that I've never quite understood that I had friends in high school that were like really, yes. really into it. Yes. And I, I still don't understand it. Um, but you know, Huge. yeah. And, and, and then, and then you think about something like house music, which originated in Chicago, you know, mm -hmm. originated in these like in Detroit, you know, in these like Northern Midwestern bleak environments. And it kind of makes sense to me, you know, that, um, you know, house originates there. So I, I find that, you know, kind of, through line for the sake of wine and music. Really and, interesting. I mean, again, with sort of terroir and context, you hear a good techno song in a warehouse at 3 a.m. and you're like, oh shit, it makes sense now. Yeah. And I hated techno growing. I didn't get it. I was like, this is horrible. And then when you're put in that environment, it, it just clicks. You're like, oh, now I get it. I think a lot of people who love house music have like kind of a conversion moment. They have this road to Damascus moment where they're sweaty and either sober or very sober, not sober at all, and just, you know, dancing their ass off, and, and then, like, a song clicks, a, mm -hmm. like a, you know, a, a, like a beat drops, and they just, you know, they're never the same again. Yeah, and I absolutely similar experiences with food throughout my entire career, where yeah. certain things I was never drawn to, I didn't think I liked. I mean, I didn't eat seafood until I was in, like, my mid-20s or something. Yeah. I, you know. I, well, I didn't, I, it's funny, I, I have a lot of things like that. I 
didn't eat a ton of seafood growing up just because it wasn't something I was into. I can remember olives in particular. Oh, same. Um, yeah, it wasn't man. something I ate until I was a college sophomore or college junior and visited um, uh, one of my my roommates who was studying abroad in Barcelona. And if you wanted to eat free in a Barcelona bar, you, olives were the option. So yeah. I just I just came to like them because they were free. You know, hundred percent. I'm still. That's funny you say that. It's like the one. People ask, "What don't you like?" Olives are the one thing left, and I will truly eat anything that I. They still haven't totally clicked. Oh me. yeah, yeah. Not totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it is interesting, but maybe if I spent time in Spain, if it was the only <laughs> option, yeah, yeah, it yeah. would have clicked. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, for the sake of today's program, uh, this is a bottle of that uh, you asked me to bring that you actually had a picture of. I was irrationally excited about that. Yeah, because it's a it's a divisive wine. So oh. um, uh, well, this yeah, it's gonna be the glass on your right, and let's try this. So. Um, how much do you know about this particular bottle, Jack? Oh, please refresh me all the way. Um, this, for full disclosure, was something that was poured at Tail Up, um, which I will say this is this is not shilling. It's not state-run media here. <laughs> Tail Up in, and Revelers are my two favorite places to eat in the city. Always have been. I lived in uh, Adams Morgan, Columbia Heights, and it was always like my safe place to go alone and eat at the bar um, and drink. And you have been a huge part of my wine education. Um, I think I was more of a cocktail guy, generally, and uh, eating at your restaurants and, and going through your wine lists and either you pouring or anybody else at the restaurant has always opened my eyes to new stuff. Yeah, and this was one of those bottles. Thanks, and, man. And um, I don't remember much other than taking a picture to remind myself oh, cool. that this that's, was no, that's really great. That's, something I that's, like. That's perfect. So um, for your sake, this is Old Muscadet. Uh, so let's start with the Muscadet thing. Um, Muscadet is what the French call a designation of origin. So Muscadet is a place. Um, and I, I even brought maps, which is very exciting. Uh, Muscadet is a place. So um, Muscadet exists um, at the mouth of the Loire River, which stretches over a thousand kilometers. Um, it flows uh, westward uh, into the uh, Atlantic, and this is at the mouth of the Loire River. Um, Hugh Johnson, one of my winemaking or one of my wine writing heroes, calls this Neptune, uh, Neptune's own vineyard because the grape here is Melon de Brigon, uh, which. Uh, the Bourgogne there refers to the fact that it's originally thought to be from Burgundy. Uh, it came to the region uh, in the 17th century at the behest of the Dust, who, Dutch, who were doing most of the planning and trading uh, there at the time. Uh, it is a famously neutral grape, so it doesn't have a really strong flavor in and of itself. And uh, to give it more character, it's traditionally aged on what's called a lees. So the lees are dead yeast cells left over at the end of the fermentation process and other fine sediment in the wine. And aging a wine on the lees gives it this cheesy richness that it wouldn't have otherwise, which um, is transformative. And this is a lees bomb. So this is a 2010. This wine probably spent the better part of a decade on the lees, which is a preposterously long time, um, and then additional time in the bottle uh, thereafter. And uh, this kind of returns us to one of my favorite Muscadet fast facts, which is Muscadet is not a geographical place. It, it a, a name ascribed to a geographical zone and a product for the sake of this wine, but it's a, a nickname. It comes from a French expression, uh, vin uh, qui un goutte musquet, um, which is wine with a musk-like taste. Um, do you know what musk is? I mean, I think I do. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think musk is? Yeah. I mean, um, I cheated. I looked ahead and... and, and this idea of kind of using musical terms to, to describe wine, I think, is awesome. And I was going to say dusty or like, um, 
dusty was the word that came to my mind, and I don't know if that necessarily matches. No, that, that works. That works. So I ask when servers are tasting wine and smelling wine for the first time, I ask them to assess what call the development. Does this thing smell like young, adolescent, mature, or over the hill? This is pretty ripe. You know, we're getting, we're like in moldy peach territory for the, for the, sake, of this, for the sake of this wine. And that brings us to musk. So musk traditionally um, was the anal gland of a male musketeer. And it was um, hugely significant for perfumers. Um, and is the, the musk deer is now endangered. So now it's like all sorts of musk are synthetic, but it has all sorts of different smells. So it, it smells skunky um, and fecal, um, but it also in smaller quantities kind of smells sweet and can smell like sweat and uh, like sex and, you know, kind of this animal, um, you know, kind of savage, um, you know. Pheromonal. Ter- yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and what, what I really dug about this um, just kind of, uh, you know, digging, doing a musk deep dive, uh, was that perfumers talk about um, the head and the heart for the sake of fragrances. The um, the head being, you know, these things that have a shorter half, half-life and kind of blow away. The heart being these, you know, um, smells that endure, and musk is very enduring. And musk is really important in a lot of perfumes, less as, you know, this overt flavor and more as this, you know, structure to attach things to. And that felt hugely musical to me. Um, you know, this idea of this, like, you know, enduring baseline that you kind of write over the top of. Yeah, or in, even I'm thinking of, like, uh, a kind of, like I said, like a dusty drum break, like a sampled loop drum break that's just your foundation of this, like you said, overripe, this thing that's yeah. just, yeah, that, I like that a lot. Yeah, but it's one of those moments where like you get a whiff of yourself and you're like, damn, I stink, but I kind of like it. <laughs> um, and you know, not not everybody has those moments, but uh, um, I think you know those of us who are in the business of smell, you know, certainly find all smells fascinating. Um, you know, just like do you find like shrill sounds and like off like oh, atonal yeah. things like uh, and discordant noises interesting? Absolutely, and that's why I'm drawn to I think weirder wines. Um, I absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like confrontational sounds, sort of things that make you a little bit uncomfortable. Um, absolutely. Uh, now, if this wine was like a backbeat or like a song or whatever, uh, you know, what would it be? Yeah, like to kind of continue on what I was saying about this dusty drum break thing, but not in a straightforward hip hop kind of way, maybe more of a like ambient breakbeat Apex twenty kind <laughs> of like sort of ambient but has body and movement yeah. to it, but it's kind of ethereal. Ambient and, but and, not in like an elevator music kind of way. Yeah, like that. yeah right. Yeah. And, and or Boards of Canada would be a better reference <laughs> because that's a kind of group where it's like this sounds like it's from a VHS tape from the eighties or something, but it was made today, so it's yeah. current but old yeah. So And they were they recorded it on to like tape. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I I, I, dig, I dig it. Yeah, something about this wine like it tastes a little analog, um, yeah. uh, and I, I dig that. I, I was thinking, you know, I was just in terms of funk of it, like early Parliament, um, mm. you know, like like less baroque, like diaper wearing, like you know, late Parliament, but like when they were just like kind of a soul, like it was like soul grooves, um, yes. you know, uh, 
Uh, I, I I like that. But, I mean, like uh, I think George Clinton got to start with like doo-wop music. Yeah, so yeah. I think what well, all it all grew out of that. Yeah. So uh, to your point, yeah, like, that they just early they just started taking hard drugs and then, <laughs> and then and then it went to a very different place. So you're saying like right before the hard drugs? That's what we're <laughs> no. I think about. like I think this is like the first layer of hard drugs. Yeah, so like yeah. yeah 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 we're like we're on we're like just experimenting with hard drugs, but we're not at like the you know, Sergeant Pepper's moment of our transition, you know, as, as musicians. Love that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing I dig about this wine too, is that, um, for me, this always has this like evocation of uh, place. So this has these, um, ocean at low tide vibes to me. Mm. Um, it's definitely the low ebb of the tide. Cause there's like all the seaweed out. There's like the horseshoe crab that is, you know, in various states of decay. Um, and there's like the aroma is really heady um, and salty, but it's also like strangely alluring um, in, a, in a cool way, which is to say that this is a somewhat divisive wine. And um, uh, a lot of my coworkers at the restaurant utterly uh, loathe it. Wow. Um, yeah, no, I know. Because uh, it's not conventionally delicious. It's like, and it reminds me of my, um, my wife has said, uh, and this this reminds me of music a little bit that, um, you know, I've graduated out of, you know, drinking wines that are conventionally delicious, like the things that are just totally weird that I want to understand are the ones that occupy my attention. Just whereas, like, like for Philip Glass, I could see, like, pop music just being boring, you know? Um, not, that, not that I'm the Philip Glass of, of, of zombies or anything in those lines, but um, I like that idea. But I also like, you know, you know, the odd, you know, well-crafted pop song too. So I'm right yeah, there yeah, with yeah, you, man. Yeah, yeah. And that's like how I listen to music too. I am listening yeah. to a lot of weird, ambient, avant-garde stuff. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, you like a good pop song. But I think, especially the older I get, the less I can enjoy those things. Um, yeah. So you know, it's but there's something. I think there's something to a perfectly crafted pop song. Um, yeah. You know that that can feel like coming home. Um, you know, there's something like very familiar about it at once, but also like really soul stirring. Um, and uh, I, 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 there are a lot of wines that occupy that niche for me Dude, as well. Totally, and I think when, I, when I'm left to my own devices, I'm jumping to like the Georgian section or the weird, I'm always asking for the weirdest thing on a menu. If I'm in a situation where somebody just pours me like a really good Barbresco or something, I, th I think I have that moment. Yeah. Like coming home, you're like, oh man, this is so just easy and good yeah. and simple. And Oh yeah, it's just like rediscovering like an old classic record that, you know, you left on the shelf for, for a little while. Yeah. And, and the needle drops and, you know, you know, you just feel that like, thrill. Right. Um, like, yeah. oh, should I love, I love the Beatles, actually. I yeah. I never listened yeah, to this. Yeah, this Abbey yeah. Road's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, so um, we are recording today out of uh, a studio that post-pandemic is, is sadly empty, but... Um, after you left Heritage, you opened um, and launched a radio network out of this very hotel. What was that experience like? It was uh, probably the proudest thing I've done in my life. I mean, I was plucked by the great Cat Bangs, who was the creative director of the Sedell Company, which is the company that opened this hotel, the Nomad, um, the Saguaro, and uh, the freehand, that was their portfolio at the time, and she kind of tricked me. I wanted to move to LA at the time. I was kind of growing stale at Heritage and wanting to make a new move, and she had two or three meetings with me about LA, and like, maybe we can do some cool stuff with the hotel and you in LA, and the third meeting, she's like, okay, I've been, I've been lying. Uh, how do you feel about DC? like DC. So how did how did you feel about DC? I didn't know anything. I think my first reaction was to turn my nose up because like everybody, it's like I came here on a school trip and don't know anything else about it. Yeah. Um, 
And she said, let me take you to DC, give you my tour, and like try to sell me on it, really. And um, she did. And actually, I, I, met, I, was, I saw you on that trip. Yeah, cool. We went to Tail Up for a drink. Yeah, awesome. She took me to, you know, Maquetto. I think we went to Tail Up and then like Madam's Organ late night. But we went to Maquetto the next day. I did a podcast workshop with uh, Ari Shapiro from NPR. Oh, shut up. Ari's great. Yeah. Because um, I was still at Heritage. So it was like this... Heritage Jackins, it was a podcast workshop people signed up for, a lot of community came, I met a lot of people, Eddie Kim, um, all these sort of, because I'm coming from food, a lot of people knew me from Heritage Radio, yeah. so that was sort of this entry you point. Had, you had street cred. A little, I guess, um, but I was taken, I think Maketo really sealed the deal for me, I'm like, what the fuck, like, this is not what I thought DC was. Yeah. And Maketo almost had a Roberta's energy. Oh, totally. Um, and But like Southeast Asian. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But like the streetwear and all these people coming in and out and this like hub of just cool shit. And then meeting Jamal Gray and all the who's the guy that did the theme song for the show. Um, it, DC just kind of blew my mind. Yeah, that's cool. And I not only was just open to it, I was like really into it and ready to move here and take it on fully. Um, so moved to DC as this hotel was being built. Of course, as anybody that's followed the trajectory of this hotel knows, it took way longer to open than anticipated. So I had almost a full year of living in D.C. without this being open. Um, and I was kind of building it out and, and specking it and sourcing equipment and designing where everything would go, but I had a lot more time on my hands, so I had a lot of time to dig into the D.C. community and just continue to be blown away by the art, the music, the, just the soul of this place. Yeah, because I think a lot of people who don't live here have this image of Washington, D.C., the federal city, yeah. and they don't have a sense of how vibrant, you know, D.C., the local city is, culturally, especially. I found it to be more of a creative hotbed than Brooklyn. I mean, and, and that sounds crazy, but, like, Brooklyn is full of transients, people moving there to be seen, to be heard. They're coming from all these other places, and they want to kind of reinvent themselves, and it's, like, a little showy, almost, or, like, as the kids say, try hard. DC felt like its own thing. And all the artists I met here felt like they were genuinely them. And there was something earnest about the music and the art here that I didn't see in New York really at all. Almost like this small town thing, but it's still a city and just incredibly diverse and soulful. I just truly, truly fucking fell in love with it. Um, so opening full service was really easy. And once that all started happening, it was easy for me to kind of pick who came in and who did shows and staying true to the food thing. We had a lot of food content, but then a lot of nightlife stuff. And um, it was awesome. Man. We had like 35 shows a week once we opened here. Oh, that's awesome. Um, do you have a favorite moment? A favorite moment? Yeah, I do. Um, every Wednesday, we had something called Uptown Cypher. And it was... Um, hosted by Jamal Gray, and there'd be at least 10, 12 rappers in here, basically freestyling for hours, DJ playing. It was really like chaotic thing. People with red solo cups don't tell anybody. Um, but what it was, was, that, what that, was in the red solo cups? Who knows? Who knows? Water. <laughs> Water, I assume. Heard, heard. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, very, genuinely, I'm genuinely curious what the illicit drink of choice was. Truly uh, don't know. And I yeah. think probably just cheap wine. Okay. Because, yeah. like, I mean, that's, that's like a big... Um, regional signifier for the sake of like hip hop communities oh, is what sure, is sure, the sure. Yeah, what like, is going in your you know red solo cup yeah, no no lean yeah up here yeah but, like, yeah exactly probably just cheap wine I mean yeah. it, it was tough for a lot of people coming in here that like 
you go to order a drink at a hotel bar, and like this isn't a knock on the line. This is any hotel or any restaurant. Like fifteen dollars. Right. What? Yeah. Like yeah. we can get a whole bottle for three bucks at Trader <laughs> Joe's. Well, I mean, in Adams Morgan, you could just go down the street and get, you know. Yeah. 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 So I think there was just a lot of that. But anyway, that that was kind of the the raucous energy in here on Wednesday nights, and there was this one week where it just so happened that I was upstairs at a Rake's Progress because, and this is before Rake's was officially open. This, uh, this mind you being the restaurant that uh, opened um, in, it's really gorgeous uh, kind of, um, like a, a balcony space. Yeah. Um, uh, that, um, you know, the, the hotel we're in is a former church and um, the balcony was repurposed as um, this gorgeous restaurant. And Beautiful the, this, restaurant. the space itself is just stunning. Yeah, and the, and the food was great. It was Spike Jarity from Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore, and um, they were in sort of a friends and family mode, but they had a VIP that was up there, and Creative, I hope I don't get in trouble. I guess it's a different team now. It doesn't matter. Creative wanted it to, uh, to feel open and active. So it was like, let's get a bunch of the creative community and some of our friends and family to eat and drink there to make it seem like, oh, this oh, place is open. Like this place buzzy. Is- mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the VIP was... Barack Michelle, Sasha Malia. Oh, nice. For Michelle's birthday. Uh, and this uh, should be said, this is, this is post-presidency, right? Uh, uh, it no. Could've, it could have been like the, the tail end of... Tail uh, end, uh, I yeah. believe. Like the very tail end. Because they have subsequently become, or they became neighbors because uh, yeah. they live in Calorama just around the street post-presidency. But uh, yeah, that's wild. It's probably, it was pre, pre-2016. Yeah. yeah. So, again, I don't know. If, if it wasn't, it was just after, but... Um, so that was crazy, and then after the dinner, their G- the GMs are sort of just giving them a little walk around of the space, and I'm texting everybody in the studio, like, yo, don't be, don't be weird about it, but like, Obama's upstairs, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's a moment where he stands, we're in the radio station now, I'm looking out to the kitchen of a Rake's Progress, there's a balcony there, and he's standing on the balcony as they're pointing to the radio station, showing him that it's there, and everyone's in there, red solo cups in hand, kind of looking up, and there's just this moment that was like, fuck, this is it. Like, this is why we did this. This is, like, couldn't be more perfect. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that's probably my favorite moment in here. I love that. Um, so I uh, transition into wine number two here. So uh, this is another Muscadet, not quite as old. Um, this is from the same larger region. So you're along the Loire at the confluence of two tributaries thereof, which are called the Sev and the Men. Um, and uh, Muscadet has done this thing. They've tried to kind of um, codify and promote these 10 zones that are called crews. So they kind of roughly correspond to villages, uh, the closest analog being in Beaujolais, where there are also 10 crews. Uh, it is um, a important you know, innovation for the winemakers there, but one that uh, is not well known, um, you know, kind of among, within, you know, kind of the, even the nerdy wine drinking uh, public. Uh, did you have any sense of what Muscadet is, was? Uh, and uh, yeah, so yeah, that's, no. that's, the, that's the first hurdle, let alone that there are these like 10, you know, fullest expressions of Muscadet that are terroir-based. So each of them has kind of a, a different character is the idea. So um, this is a wine from, from two friends, two winemaking friends. And this one's from one of the 10 crews called Chateau Thibault. Uh, it should be said the first winery drink um, is from a different crew called Saint Fiac. Um, Saint Fiac is literally um, between uh, the seven, the men, it's, it's where the two rivers meet. Um, and because it's at the confluence of these rivers, it has kind of 
this slightly heavier, deeper, more alluvial soil, and it gives you know uh, wines a fuller body. Um, this crew that we're exploring next, Chateau Thibault, is literally just across the river um, uh, from uh, the um, estate, you know, the vineyards that we we just uh, you know kind of experienced for the sake of the first one. But um, it's it's kind of a higher riverbank, steeper slopes, thinner soil, harder soil. So. This is a wine that is known more for refinement and steelier, stonier. Um, and uh, this one also spends a long ass time on the lees. That is a, a sommelier turn of art, uh, long ass. Uh, in this case, five years. Um, I would gather, I would hedge it, you know, kind of register about that as less time than uh, the first wine that we had. And, and this one's still cheesy, still musky. Uh, how, how would you rate the, uh, you know, the muskiness? Much of less, though. Yeah. Uh, as a quick aside, the, I think the thing that scares, when I said earlier, wine still scares me and everything, I think the hardest thing for me to realize was not being afraid of saying what comes to mind. Totally. And I was always worried I'd say the wrong thing. Um, and that's something I'm trying to get over. So, what? A lot of people, a lot of people have that, and I very much want this to be a forum where uh, people can come in and just, you know, both talk about shit they're into as it, you know, tangentially relates to wine, but also you know, kind of throw out those ideas. Some of my favorite tasting notes in the world are the ones that are like the most off the wall. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there is a, a precise language of wine for the sake of characterizing the body of these things and talking about fruit and non-fruit and all these other things. But I, I like the tasting notes as synesthesia. Like this wine tastes, you know, purple to me. Or, yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah. you know, wine notes as, you know, a playlist. And there are a lot of um, winemakers, younger winemakers in particular, that are embracing that. I'll give you like... Uh, I have the Slovenian wine on the list at Revelers, and the winemakers have like a five-song playlist for mm. it. Um, and I totally, I totally dig that. Like we had, we had an event, we poured the wine, we played the, we played the songs, and it kind of it made sense. It was like uh, um, Georges, like uh, the, it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know that like old. Uh, it was it's uh, the, the song I know from this like. Uh, Nike Brazilian national soccer team ad. Oh, why yes, 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 um, yes, yes, uh, And uh, yeah, it, it, it works though. And and uh, you know those kind of you know more imperfect um, uh, solutions. You know those analogies, those those that are um, the most kind of salient personally, but might not be um, as relatable. You know that that's the gold. You know that that like that level of hyper specificity um, for the sake of experiencing this thing that is that is hugely visceral. I, I think you know those are the tasting notes I find that are the most memorable. They're not always the most helpful, <laughs> but they're, I th- they're like very often they're the most evocative. Um, so uh, for the sake of, of this wine, like musically, how do you uh, relate this to our, our first our first, first track? First word that came to mind was colder. Yeah. And more classical. Like, yeah. I, I felt like a colder, and I don't mean that as a bad sterile thing necessarily, but sort of just like a more refined, classical, not so dusty and kind of out there, but still old and distinguished. And Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, the first one, you know, feels, by comparison, a little more Baroque. Like, we're just, you know, it's like the free jazz thing, or just paying, yeah. playing whatever notes we want to, you know... This is like, it's not quite, you know, Duke Ellington level, play the wrong note, and you get like, you know, taken from the bandstand. I mean, I think there's still a little room to improvise, but we're not improvising as much on this track. No, it felt more intentional, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, It's very good. 
Um, you know, but it still has uh, some of that muskiness about it. And, and I think it still has, you know, it's more, for me, it's, it's more like uh, over, right, like, like it's more melony, you know, it, it has, uh, uh, which is fitting for a grape called melon. Um, I think in the context of the grape and its etymology, that refers more to the shape than it does, you know, a certain flavor. But um, here I get this, like, honeydew kind of uh, musk melon. I think that's where the cold thing for me was coming, that kind of refreshing cold, like yeah. Yeah, that, that feeling of like a really good melon. Yeah. Um, it's funny too, like having them side by side, I just went and smelled the last glass, I have a little bit left in there, and it's like, wow. And you really feel the musk in this one, you're like. Whoa. Yeah, and I, okay. actually, I really love tasting wine that way. Uh, having a foil for a wine, yeah. I find hugely instructive. And, and sometimes when you're just tasting a wine in isolation, it can, you know, feel like you're uh, just in space and, and there's no context, you know, there's, there's no measuring stick and tasting wine side by side, they, they each serve as, as a measuring stick one for the other in, in a really helpful kind of way. Which is also an engineering trick and a mixing trick. And Oh, really? You know, they always teach you to sort of, anytime you're at a new setup, like, have a certain set of songs that you play on every system sort of to compare. Oh, that makes sense. Not to really say, like, my song sounds like, it's just to, like, get your bearings back. Yeah. So if I'm in a room and I'm mixing a new song, I'm like, okay, put on something you know really well. And then you might be like, oh, well, the bass is just really loud in this room. It's not my song. This song that I know very well, you know? So it's, I think that same sort of idea, having something to kind of pit it against. When When you're mixing a track yourself, is there a particular environment that you want to hear it in that's like the gold standard for the sake of people experiencing this music for themselves? Sure, I mean like, you know, a perfectly acoustically treated room. Oh, so you're not, you're not, like I've I've read that some musicians like to, you know, they want to listen to a track in the car. Like that's their, uh, they want to get it out of context. No, that's uh, true and that's what I do. I think I'm answering that question aspirationally because it's something I don't have access to. (laughs) Man, I would love to have that, but no, I mix in my apartment every bedroom I've ever been in, the records I made with Odetta, every record I've ever made has been mixed in a bedroom. Um, And yes, absolutely. Cars, I love, I love, I will listen to a song or an album on an iPhone, which I never listen to music that way, but oh, it's like, I know that people will. Yeah. So let me make sure it doesn't sound like absolute dog shit on just a phone speaker. Um, I'll listen on AirPods. I'll, I, like, so I'm always kind of simulating how I think other people will listen. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so uh, having tried these two wines, I want to kind of uh, settle back into the life of this radio station, which is, um, you know, a bit of a sad story because pandemic intervened and obviously... There was no possibility of uh, maintaining a live radio outlet. And then there are all sorts of contextual and economic forces that um, resulted in the sale of the restaurant. And uh, we are now sitting in a studio that uh, I, I occupy and have kind of like uh, adopted, but um, is not what it once was. Uh, you know, how do you kind of come to terms with that loss for the sake of something that was your baby? Very difficult, um, and and just worth noting, the very last podcast that was recorded here uh, before the closure of the studio was Jill from Tell Up and Red oh, brilliant. on Shift Drink with Eddie Kim and Opie from um, the restaurant. Who, yeah. he, he's still here, actually, and they were talking about sort of the realities of COVID being upon us yeah. and restaurant impending closings and closures. And so it, it's the, just sort of interesting and full circle that you are here now. Oh, that's great. This. And for the, for the uninitiated, um, Jill Tyler is my amazing business partner who is basically responsible for holding the place together, holding both places together. Incredible person. And, uh, it was very difficult. It was very, very hard. Um, 
because it wasn't just about me, it was, it was the rest of the community, and I think a lot of people depended on this space, and it was a home for their creative outlets, mm -hmm. and I had an employee full-time, Alexia, and had to like let her go. It was challenging, um, and I sort of emotionally started to move on. I moved to L.A., kind of in search of... So you finally moved to L.A. Finally, yeah, exactly. Which was already in motion because we were trying to expand full service there and we were going to build a studio at that property. So I was already thinking oh, of splitting my time between yeah. D.C. and L.A. And then COVID hit and it was just like, I have to make this move for myself. Um, emotionally started moving on. I was living in Mexico City for a few months. Oh, that's awesome. Working remotely, digging into Cumbia and Mezcal and... Uh, Got a call from Stefan, who is now the creative director, who was previously with Sedell. He was one of the only holdovers. And he was like, hey, man, um, I know it's been a while. Like, we would love to do something with the space still if you're open. And I felt great about that. It was like, okay, I don't actually have to let this completely die. Scope being much smaller in terms of my contract with them and everything. But just being able to reopen the doors here felt really good, even if it wasn't going to be this like 24 seven, 35 shows a week thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, you're in here and there are other community members that have access to the space that are like slowly starting to use it. I've, I've reimagined the studio in more of a point and shoot way where the services of an engineer aren't needed since I can't be here full time and we can't have staff here full time. So it's in this like transition period where it's no longer really full service radio, this network, but I've kind of reimagined full service radio as the name of this room. I like that. Um, so it can live on that way. And it's, it's interesting, um, reading a few of your interviews online, so much of what you talk about in the context of podcasts is about community building. Yeah. And it's a little different sometimes than what people uh, reference when they're talking about podcasting. A lot of times it's, it's about sharing a particular perspective. And for you, I, I feel like it is this coming together that, that, you, that you want. And if you ha just have somebody in isolation recording in their parents' basement, then you feel like there's something kind of missing from, from the experience. And I have to give credit to Patrick um, with Heritage Radio and his mentor was Carlo Petrini of Slow Food International. And he had something called Radio Bra in, uh, it was this uh, in, in Italy. I don't remember, where, I can't remember where in Italy, but some radio station he made this pirate thing and it was at Osteria. And just this idea of it being at a hub where people get together anyway and that being kind of a natural place for ideas to flow and yeah. exchanges to happen. And yeah, this, this idea of, of having it in a community space, I've always said, any conversation in this room, we are surrounded by glass doors and people peering in. Something changes, something happens where you're thrown off your guard a little bit and I think more stuff comes out and flows as opposed to the sterile room where everything is sort of scripted and like we're going to edit it later and blah blah blah. Everything I've done has been live to tape. I've encouraged the sloppy, the messy. I love working with people who have never done this before, helping people find their voice and fighting against what I call no shade because it's an incredible organization obviously but like NPR voice, like fighting against that. Um, because I think a lot of people, when they hear podcasts, they're like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny, too, because um, <laughs> my, my wife listened to our first episode, and she's like, it's good. I don't think you're ready for NPR. You know? And I was like, yeah, it's okay. I'm a little too excitable, and I say fuck too much. So like, <laughs> um, great, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, we, this is the, the podcasting it's, has been it's the funny, Wild West. It's, it's funny, though. I feel like even 
like those NPR personalities, once they're out of that setting, sometimes they have the foulest mouths in the world just because it's like they're, yeah. you know, they're free, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to NPR's credit and to a lot of other, or like there's a, there's a movement to move away from that and to bring new voices in and, and try to encourage people to be themselves more and, and more, diver- not just diversity of the way we talk about it as this buzzword, but really truly diversity, letting people be themselves, letting people find their own voice. I think it's happening more and more. It's something I've always been excited by. And I always tell people when they ask about full service, they're like, what podcasts are the best? I'm like, you know, half of it's like public access, decision diamonds in the rough, there's some stuff that's not good. Like, that's not what it's about. Um, If you want to be a fly on the wall, hearing regular conversations, conversations with people doing, it's it's that part. It's not this polished, buttoned up, hyper-edited, produced, award-winning thing. It's more of a, like, a window into reality, maybe. And yeah, some of it may be boring, but I think the gems you're going to find in there will be different than what you can get out of something that has a team of 10 people writing and editing and manicuring it. Uh, that's awesome. I was going to ask you what makes for a good podcast, but you, you just answered that question. <laughs> well, I mean, that, for me at least, people always ask, like, what do you listen to? I'm like, oh, God, I, the podcasts I listen to are terrible. Like, I listen to Drink Champs, which is like Noriega's podcast. It's a, it's a, dis- oh, nice. it's a disaster. It sounds like garbage. It is like three hours long. They take piss. Noriega, the MC, the rapper. Oh yeah, wow, he's the host, and he talks to all these rap legends about their lives and history and stuff. He'll take piss breaks in the middle of the show. <laughs> they're getting drunk. It's truly like a journalistic disaster, but it has that quality that I love, where it's like you're getting things that those people would not say. Otherwise. You're getting unadulterated Noriega. Yes. Yeah. Well, and yeah. more importantly, his guests. Yeah. And you're hearing these things where you're like, what well, do God. you, for, does that podcast have a name or is it just like? Drink Champs. Oh, you, you already said, you already said yeah, uh, yeah, Drink yeah. Champs. That's, that's good. And like uh, I said, it's not a good, po- it's like a terrible podcast. Well, if, if for, you know, the dozens of people listening to this one that want to get into Drink Champs, is there like a particular episode that you would recommend? Oh, man, I think the DMX one was really... Oh, uh, R.I.P., man. Yeah, R.I.P. They really, uh, really every... I mean, they're in, they're in a bit of hot water right now because they were the most... They had Kanye on and were accused of sort of enabling all the insane things he was saying because they kind of let it slide. But he's not a uh, journalist, nor a guy. I mean, he's like yes. on five blunts in a bottle of like and, tequila. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, K- Kanye's going to Kanye. Right. I, yeah. I don't think we should be holding Noriega to like the journalistic. Standards. Well, especially when a lot of like prominent news organizations struggle to fact check our former president. I mean, that's the fact checking. Right. Fact checking right. in real time is desperately hard. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, the DMX episode's great. If you love hip hop, I think just kind of choose your favorite artist. They have t- way too many episodes to go through. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's this this rough around the edges thing that I love, and um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's that. But then a good podcast can be all those manicured produced things that I'm yeah. not personally but I think well, I, I recognize I, the brilliance I like Adore uh, Adore Radiolab oh um, sure I mean it's and, and yeah Radiolab's incredibly manicured but they play with sound in these really novel ways so one of my favorite episodes of Radiolab is uh, they are talking about how we uh, see the world the mm-hmm. you know the vision you know in different animals and because you know humans have this you know relatively narrow range of the spectrum that they can see and other animals can see infrared and ultraviolet and stuff like that and they brought on a choir um, to mimic you know these different frequencies and ranges that people can perceive and uh, it was just a really amazing analogy um, for the sake of you know a few voices you know versus 
like a ton of voices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the sake of wavelengths of light, it was kind of a really fluid oh, and kind of natural, uh, like, analogy. I love that, and I love Radiolab. And I think, I think maybe the distinction I want to make here is, like, when I get asked that question, it's generally by somebody looking to start their own podcast. And Radiolab has a huge team, man. There's, like, resources. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think it's just kind of crazy to come out of the gate and aspire to do something like that. Yeah. Um, well, and it's, it's so heavily produced, too. Which is great if yeah. you have the resources in the team, but if you don't, just explore your voice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Radiolab's, you know, legendary, undefeated. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, brilliant. So uh, at this point in the show, uh, a bit of verse for you. And this came to mind um, in the context of your last point. So there's this great Thomas Gray um, uh, poem and uh, so I think an elegy to a churchyard and there's this very famous line in it full many a flower is born to blush unseen um, for the sake of the podcast for the sake of of the you know Noriegas of the world that uh, don't get the credit they deserve uh, for the you know podcasting geniuses that they are but uh, uh, this this came to mind because uh, you have you've had this amazing life in Brooklyn and and the bard of Brooklyn um, Walt Whitman um, is equally uh, the seminal figure in the life of Washington, D.C. This is from Song of Myself. Um, it is uh, section 18. With music strong I come, with my cornets and my drums. I play not marches for accepted victors only. I play marches for conquered and slain persons. Have you heard that it was good to gain the day? I also say it is good to fall. Battles are lost in the same spirit in which they are won. I beat and pound for the dead. I blow through my embouchers, my loudest and gayest for them. Vivas to those who have failed, and to those whose war vessels sank in the sea, and to those themselves who sank in the sea, and to all generals that lost engagements and all overcome heroes, and the numberless unknown heroes equal to the greatest heroes known. Shit. Uh, so thank you, Uncle Walt. Um, That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, no, I mean... Uh, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And, and uh, before uh, we, we came on, you know, we were talking about uh, this exercise, and I was saying that, uh, you know, I have strangely enjoyed just the act of making the show in isolation, and I hope that people will listen to it, but it kind of doesn't necessarily inform, you know, the enjoyment that I drive from, uh, from this, this activity. And, and you said that's, that's probably right. Like, that's exactly where you need to be coming from for the Absolutely. sake of your... <laughs> the best podcasts I ever produced for Heritage I, were not judged on listener metrics. It was like, did a host or guest have a moment of revelation on that show that led to a personal change in their life? And I've heard chefs or restaurant operators be like, I came to that conclusion on the podcast, and I had that aha moment in this interview, and then, like, it changed my business. So, kind of like, fuck who listens, fuck all that. Like, are you getting that out of it? Yeah. That, to me, is, like, that's the goal. Well, I, I think if you, especially if you spend an hour talking to somebody um, about something they're passionate with, I think occasionally you'll get, you know, a couple minutes where they are, you know, their truest selves, or, you know, you tease something out of them that, you know, um, they just haven't shared uh, in a, in a particular way, and um, yeah, that's that's that is that is the gold. Uh, yes. Um, thank you so much for joining. Sure, I wanted to kind of close things out uh, with uh, a word about our um, our lead in music because uh, I didn't know the artist and I had nothing to do with it. I hugely excited about it. I was actually kind of, you know, wondering what my own uh, lead in music would be. Um, you know, if I could afford the rights, I thought maybe it would be like the 
um, the piano line from like Shimmy Shimmy Yaw. <laughs> um, um, or, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But uh, um, uh, how did you? So first of all, uh, whose whose uh, artwork is that? And that is, uh, and and why did you pick it uh, for this particular program? That is DC's finest, Jamal Gray, um, son of Jimmy Gray, the founder of Blackfire Recordings, which was this sort of psychedelic soul jazz record label in DC that uh, did records with uh, Plunky and Oneness of Juju and sort of was part of this black futurist movement back then. And, and Jamal uh, has been a huge leader in the creative community in the city. He's the first person that Morgan West, shout out to Morgan West, who was a huge part of how this all developed. Um, she, he was the first person she introduced me to when I moved to DC and was like, you need to know him first. And Jamal unlocked a lot of doors for me in the city. And I've worked with him on things, and he's a regular here. And um, just nobody, to me, encapsulates the sound of like modern, soulful DC like him and his sort of affiliates. So anytime there's a music opportunity in this space for anything related to, actually, if you call the hotel still, I was on hold with them earlier trying to get to the front desk, and his music is still playing oh, that's awesome. online, which is awesome. Um, so Jamal is like always my go-to for anything, and uh, the song for this is called Folding Tables. It's part of a, um, he makes so many beats, and I actually helped put together a beat tape for him, and this was included on that. Oh, that's so cool. So, uh, Jamal Gray, DC, Google that, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, yeah, he still that. has um, a, a show on uh, The Messenger, WPFW, 89.3, on, right. your, on your dials, which is, Equally, one of the most rewarding and infuriating radio listening experiences in in, in DC, yes. uh, but I I love it to death. Um, and it's like I don't know, it's just gem because radio has just gotten so boring. Um, uh, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and PFW is just like lovable redoubt of just like deeply passionate musicians um, and you know. Radical politics, um, like like <laughs> lovably love, like well intentionally radical, but like radical. Um, uh, and um, yeah, it, it's just like oh, yeah. it's it's such a it's such a, such a local treasure, and 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 it just like I don't know, like uh, every time I, I listen to it and I catch something that I utterly adore, um, it's just I, I don't know, it's like a, a special moment of zen. You can hear anything, but from free jazz to like oh, yeah. hardcore Baltimore club music, like you never know what you're gonna get on yeah. that station. Um, well, thank you so much again for joining us, Jack. Where can the people find you? What the hell are you up to uh, oh, these days when you're not, um, you know, circulating through DC and, and checking in on the studio? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm doing a little bit of everything these days. I actually just finished producing a record with Sir EU, who is another local oh, awesome. rapper in DC and a brilliant avant-garde musician is what I'd call him more than a rapper. Um, we just finished an EP that is being mastered right now and will be the first thing that I release on a little independent label I'm going to start. Um, oh, shut up. Yeah, I've actually never told anybody that. But, um, um, so, even, is, does this independent label have a name? Uh, I, I think it will be called Unbecoming Records. Oh, that's um, good. Thank you. That's yeah, good. So that's the, I, love the, I love the what's the name of your label conversation. It always brings me back to High Fidelity. <laughs> yeah. uh, top five records. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I had this moment where we finished this record and I was starting to pitch it to people and then I was like, why don't I just do this? Um, so I think that's where that's headed. Um, so been up to that. I'm, I'm doing kind of post-production sound here and there. Um, I'm still producing a number of podcasts for people from different parts of my life. Um, and this is still a huge part of me, this this 
project in DC and working with the Line Hotel and their other properties to produce content. So out and about. Awesome, man. Well, we are uh, hugely grateful that you make it available to us. Um, uh, where can people find you on the on the socials if they want to like follow your your goings on? At Jack Inslee everywhere, um, jackinslee.com. There's not very much, but if you want to get in touch, that's how to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I DJ here and there. So anytime I'm in DC, I'm usually DJing somewhere. So follow along, see where I'm at. Thank you, sir. Um, if you like the sound of what we're drinking today, um, if you want to find out what um, you know, these various musical cues taste like, uh, these wines will be available at Revelers Hour, uh, which is Washington's premier wine and pasta bar on Columbia Road, directly across the street from the historic Line Hotel. Thank you one and all for listening. Uh, stay tuned and stay thirsty for more of The Universe in a Glass.